You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Soon after sunrise, we marched into a large field, or rather a series of fields. The fences had all been destroyed, giving the appearance of a vast field to our camping ground. I think there must have been at least 500 or 600 acres of rolling ground, entirely clear of fencing and with very little timber. This tract was bounded in a circular manner in front by woods and in the rear by the river. In the center of it was a hill that commanded the whole, and as I stood here just a little after sunrise and looked for the first time upon our whole, or very nearly our whole army, I could barely conceive any power that could overwhelm us. Lines of battle were formed almost as far as the eye could reach. Troops were in almost every conceivable position, in column at full distance, in column at half distance, in column closed in mass, in echelon, some moving rapidly to their designated places, others with arms stacked, resting on the ground, some kindling fires and making coffee, others hastily slinging knapsacks and falling into line, Yonder is a squadron of cavalry. There is another column. It was a great and grand sight, the like of which in all probability I shall never see again. Captain Edward A. Acton, 5th New Jersey, Cars Brigade. In a few moments we are in motion, forming a line of battle with our faces in the direction of the Federal artillery, whose fire seems now to increase. Between us and the enemy intervenes a body of woods, and we saw nothing of them as we moved forward. A hundred or two yards of forward movement brought us into these woods, a body of large chestnuts and oaks. Through the tops of these tall trees, far above our heads, the shot and shell of the Federal artillery howl and crash, putting us in constant danger of injury from falling fragments of huge limbs of trees. But on we went until we reached a ravine or gully, along the bottom of which ran a small stream. Here we halted. The occasion of our temporary halt just here was an examination of the route by which it would be best to go forward. We moved to our right and filed through a gate. We were now very close to the enemy. At the foot of the hill upon the table ground, McClellan's army awaited our assault, so close that we could feel the vibrations of the earth at each discharge of the Federal guns. Not three hundred yards intervened between us and these guns. To our right, in a beautiful field, with its yellow shocks of recently harvested wheat, are stationed the Federal sharpshooters. They pick off our men as they come up to take position in line of battle. As I marched along to this position, I look over towards the woods on Turkey Creek skirting this meadow. The prospect was beautiful. Everything in that direction was so tranquil that clear summer afternoon, in striking contrast with the harsh notes of war. 
The crisis was now at hand. General Mahone, seizing the colors of one of our regiments, commanded us to move forward. We rush up the slope of the hill towards the enemy, yelling at the top of our voices. Our line of battle was allowed to get well upon the hill when the enemy's infantry, stationed at not more than 150 or 200 yards in front of us, and their artillery in the rear of the infantry, all suddenly opened on us with terrific fury. Our men were driven back with terrible loss, but only to gain the protection of the brow of the hill, there to rally and to return to the charge. Sergeant George S. Bernard, 12th Virginia, Mahone's Brigade. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode 167 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. With the last episode, we set the stage for the final battle of the Seven Days Campaign, the Battle of Malvern Hill, which took place on Tuesday, July 1st, 1862. We said that with the Union Army drawn up in a strong defensive position on the plateau of Malvern Hill, Robert E. Lee and James Longstreet thought that the organizing of two grand batteries of artillery was the key to winning the day for the Confederates. Lee and Longstreet thought that by massing one grand battery on high ground east of the Willis Church Road and another at a similar spot west of the road, the rebel guns at both locations could catch the Yankees across the way in a powerful and demoralizing crossfire. A strong infantry attack going in on the heels of this bombardment could carry the Union position and perhaps achieve the decisive victory that Lee had been seeking for the past week. Lee ordered Longstreet to place batteries on the Confederate right, and he ordered Stonewall Jackson to do the same on the rebel left. He then explained the plan for the assault to his aide, R.H. Chilton, and instructed Chilton to write out the key order for the attack. Unfortunately, Chilton continued his trend of drafting imprecise, vague orders, and last week we talked about the problems with the order that Chilton wrote out for the attack on July 1st. Besides the problems with that vague order, at the end of the last show, we also outlined the problems with the Confederate artillery that meant there would be no massing of two grand batteries of guns to pound the Union position in a devastating crossfire. Instead, it was the Union guns on Malvern Hill that did the pounding. Any Confederate artillery officer could see the Yankees' numerous cannon on the plateau half a mile away and knew that only massed artillery could possibly challenge massed artillery. In other words, if the rebels opened fire with a single battery or two on the massed Federal cannon across the way, that would only invite retaliation and result in the destruction of the individual Confederate batteries. However, Stonewall Jackson believed that his orders were to move quickly and position guns east of the Willis Church Road, and therefore he didn't wait until he could mass his batteries. Instead, he sent guns into battle piecemeal as they arrived at the front. When Jackson ordered one of his division commanders, William H. Whiting, to open fire with three of his batteries, consisting of 16 guns, just as soon as they could be wheeled into position in the Poindexter Wheatfield, 
Whiting hesitated, telling Jackson, They won't live in there five minutes. But to Whiting's protest, Stonewall barked, Obey your orders, General Whiting, promptly and willingly. Whiting, in an equally foul temper, and unimpressed with Jackson's performance in the campaign thus far, responded, I always obey my orders promptly, but not willingly under such circumstances. With that testy exchange concluded, Whiting reluctantly sent his batteries into the field. Jackson pointed them to the position he wanted them, and they ventured on to the high ground of the wheat field and unlimbered. As soon as they did so, the 31 Union cannon, 800 yards away, targeted them and opened fire, wrecking the rebel guns and knocking down gunners and battery horses. While the Confederate guns managed to do some minor damage to the Union lines across the way, they were no match for the well-served and more numerous Federal cannon on Malvern Hill, though they did last a bit longer than the five minutes Whiting predicted. Three more batteries on the Confederate left would suffer the same fate. And because of a lack of coordination, Jackson's guns opened up long before Longstreet had gotten the right Grand Battery into action. Thus, there was no crossfire on the Union position. In fact, although Lee and Longstreet seemed to believe that nearly 100 rebel guns could be massed and form the two Grand Batteries, the 16 of Whiting's that opened the bombardment was the largest concentration of the day. While the guns that Longstreet brought up did manage to open fire while Stonewalls were still hanging on, they weren't able to mass either, and therefore were ineffective. As each battery came forward, it was sent into action separately and was overwhelmed by the superior federal guns on Malvern Hill. Only six batteries ever got into action on the Confederate right, and they did so individually. Here, west of the Willis Church Road, no more than eight guns ever got into action at the same time. On July 1st, many Confederate batteries were never utilized at all and remained idle all day. In fact, 35 rebel batteries never got into the fight, although they were near at hand and available. As a result of miscommunication and poor utilization of the batteries that did get into the fight, Nearly a hundred Southern artillerymen were casualties at Malvern Hill, for practically no gain. The Union cannon fire also inflicted numerous casualties on the rebel infantry soldiers, supporting the artillery, and very nearly took the life of two high-ranking brothers-in-law. One Federal shell landed right in front of Stonewall Jackson's horse as he was riding and talking with Dick Yule. Yule quickly grabbed the bridle of Jackson's mount and steered him away just seconds before the shell exploded. And then nearby, on the same part of the battlefield, D.H. Hill was sitting with his back against a tree, writing an order, when an enemy shell landed close enough to bowl him over, cake him in dirt, and tear his uniform coat. Hill stood up, dusted himself off, but then sat down on the opposite side of the tree and resumed writing out the order. He calmly told his stunned staff, I'm not going to be killed until my time comes. Certainly, though, for a few moments on that Tuesday, as they watched the enemy shell explode and bowl him over, Hill's staff must have believed that time had arrived. (laughs) 
Sometime in mid-afternoon, probably around 3 p.m., after the Confederate artillery had been engaged in their unequal contest for an hour or so, Robert E. Lee recognized that the original plan wasn't going to work. Still, he was determined to hit McClellan one more time before he reached a safe position on the James. And so Lee asked Longstreet to join him, and the two generals rode off to the east to scout that area in the hopes of finding a spot to attack the Union right flank. Lee must have thought he saw an opportunity to attack the Union right flank because he decided to move Longstreet's and A.P. Hill's divisions to the Confederate left to prepare for an assault that would have to occur the next day, July 2nd. In starting to position troops for an attack that couldn't occur until the next day, Lee must have expected McClellan would remain on Malvern Hill for another day. That wasn't an unrealistic expectation. After all, the Yankees defended a very strong, elevated position, and it was close enough to the James for the Federal gunboats to aid them. In fact, some of their big shells had hit the Confederate lines already. Lee almost certainly assumed that since the Confederate artillery hadn't disrupted the Union lines, there would be no infantry attack on July 1st. But thanks to the confusing, untimed order written by Chilton, the order that had never been canceled by Lee, there would indeed be fighting that fateful Tuesday afternoon. There's confusion about the sequence of events that occurred in the early afternoon hours of July 1st, especially regarding what Lee's exact plan was and when Chilton's order was written. Stephen Sears suggests that Lee had the order written soon after he and Longstreet discussed the idea of the two grand batteries and that the order reflected Lee's intended battle plan for the day. Others, though, contend that Lee had the order written right about the time the rebel guns began moving up and firing, and so Lee used Armistead as the signal for the infantry assault because Armistead's troops had already advanced some distance toward the Union lines to drive away some enemy sharpshooters, and therefore Lee knew that Armistead was positioned to see the effect of the Confederate artillery fire most clearly. Regardless of Lee's intentions, some facts are undeniable. At some time after 12 o'clock, Lee decided to establish two grand batteries to try to soften up the Union defenses, and he did authorize Chilton to draw up an order stipulating as much. Lee may or may not have proofread Chilton's order, but if Lee ever decided that the rebel artillery barrage was a failure, he never canceled Chilton's order or sent a revised or updated one. About this, Longstreet later speculated, quote, Under the impression that his officers realized the failure and abandonment of his original plan, General Lee failed to issue orders specifically recalling the appointed battle, end quote. Well, Longstreet may be correct, but regardless of how it happened, on the afternoon of July 1st, although Lee had recognized the original plan wasn't working, he didn't cancel his attack order, and so his commanders on the field still remained ready to obey Chilton's untimed order as soon as the shout was given from Armistead's lines. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Shortly after 3 p.m., Magruder arrived on the field with his brigades. Lee may have been off scouting to the east at this time, but he was more than likely behind the lines conferring with Uget or others. His precise location, though, isn't exactly known at this crucial moment, but it's clear from the subsequent events that occurred almost simultaneously that Lee wasn't in a position to observe the battlefield. On his arrival on the field after his errant march, Magruder assessed the tactical situation. He saw that Armistead had advanced, he saw the daunting Union lines across the way, and he experienced some of the Federal artillery fire that overwhelmed the rebel batteries west of the Willis Church Road. Magruder then dutifully sent an aide, Captain A.G. Dickinson, to report to Lee, stating that he'd arrived with his command and that Armistead had driven back some of the enemy. Although remember, this was just some sharpshooters who had been sniping at Armistead's men from behind shocks of wheat. As Dickinson set off to find Lee, some Union batteries started withdrawing from the firing line. This was because several batteries had nearly expended their ammunition during the several hours of firing and were falling back to restock. Some batteries had already fired as many as 750 rounds. Other batteries came forward to take their place as they retired, but on the Confederate side of the lines, Whiting, who was still angry at Stonewall Jackson and wanted to believe his battered guns had given us as much damage as they had received, saw the first Union batteries withdraw and believed they had been driven away by the rebel cannon fire. Whiting sent a message stating as much to Robert E. Lee. This messenger and Captain Dickinson found Lee at nearly the same time. Lee, unable to personally observe the battlefield, relied on his two commanders' judgment and decided that the Confederate artillery, in the end, must have had an effect on the enemy. Lee therefore decided to initiate the infantry attack after all, hoping to rout the retreating Federals. He gave Dickinson an order to give to Magruder, and the captain wrote it down to make sure he got it right. Quote, General Lee expects you to advance rapidly. He says it is reported that the enemy is getting off. Press forward your whole line and follow up Armistead's success. End quote. 
This was the moment that Lee had been hoping for on July 1st, and it seemed almost too good to be true, since Lee had already concluded that the Confederate artillery barrage hadn't disrupted the Union lines. But now, after hearing seemingly just the opposite from Magruder and Whiting, Lee, for whatever reason, didn't ride to the front to observe the enemy's lines for himself. He couldn't have been more than a ten-minute ride from the front, and before ordering tens of thousands of his soldiers to charge across half a mile of open field into a strong defensive line, Lee should have checked to make absolutely sure the enemy was, in fact, retreating. Instead, despite his own earlier judgment that the Southern artillery had failed, Lee now accepted the word of Whiting that it was succeeding, and he accepted the report of Magruder that Armistead had already started driving back the enemy. Lee's assumptions would be a costly mistake. As Dickinson was still on his way back to Magruder with Lee's instructions, Prince John finally received Chilton's untimed order. He naturally assumed it had just been written, and he endeavored to obey it by bringing up more batteries to bring more fire upon the Union position. Then, at around 5 p.m., Captain Dickinson reached Magruder with Lee's definite order to press forward his whole line rapidly. These two orders from Lee, in a short span of time, convinced Magruder that he must attack immediately. He estimated that he had 15,000 men on hand, although not all were in position to attack yet. Magruder rode forward and studied the ground with Armstead and Wright. Their brigades would lead the assault. Magruder decided to send Howell Cobb's brigade forward, too, in support of Armistead. All would follow the path toward the Union lines that Armistead had started. By this time, Mahone's brigade had arrived on the field, and it would go in behind Wright. And so at around 5.30, Wright's men shouted and began moving forward, aiming directly for the crew house up on Malvern Hill and taking heavy fire as they went across the open ground. They got within 300 yards of the Union line before stopping and taking shelter in a dip in the terrain. The enemy fire seemed so heavy to one Georgia soldier that he later said, quote, It is astonishing that every man did not fall. Mahone's men, following behind Wright, went through the same murderous fire and eventually joined Wright's men in the Depression, although it offered only limited concealment. Around the crew house, the regiments of Griffin's and Martindale's brigades shifted to meet the Confederate advance. Just to the left of Wright, Armistead's men, who had already already advanced to a forward position to drive off the pesky enemy sharpshooters, now cheered on Wright's troops. And with new orders and new motivation, Armistead's regiments then rose and charged to within 75 yards of the Union line toward Griffin's brigade, where they stopped and exchanged shots with the Yankees. After a few moments of this, though, Armistead's men continued their charge, only to be stopped immediately by withering musketry and cannon fire, and then counterattacked by Griffin's Federals, who advanced to repel the Confederate attack. Griffin's men forced Armistead to retreat. 
Cobb's troops were following Armistead, and Cobb's men launched a second charge on the Union line. They forced the Federal infantry to withdraw behind their gun line, but the point-blank firing of canister from those Union cannon then proved too much for Cobb's men, and they too broke and hastily fell back in some confusion. The seeming flirtation with success on Armistead's front had convinced Wright and Mahone to try and charge their opponents around the crew house again. Their brigades moved forward again and got within 200 yards of the Union line up on the crest of the plateau before enemy fire and difficult terrain defeated them. One of Wright's soldiers said they experienced, quote, as terrible a fire of grape, canister, and miniballs as ever was rained and poured about mortal man, end quote. And proving that rebel soldier's point, the six guns of Company A, 5th U.S. Artillery, under Lieutenant Adelbert Ames, which was located west of the Willis Church Road, fired 1,392 rounds of shell and canister at the charging Confederates that afternoon. The rebel infantry couldn't advance any closer into this destructive enemy cannon fire and musketry, and so spent the rest of the evening hugging the ground and returning fire up the hill as best they could. The fighting here had been brief and vicious, but for all intents and purposes, the four brigades of Armistead, Cobb, Wright, and Mahone were out of the fight. Those four Confederate brigades were out of the fight, but D.H. Hill's division was just getting into it. Hill had actually been preparing to set up an encampment for his men for the night and was surprised to hear the signal for the attack. Three and a half hours had passed since Hill had received Chilton's order, and he assumed no attack would be forthcoming given the failure of the rebel artillery. But at 5.30, Hill clearly heard the yell coming from Armistead's direction and heard even the clearer sounds of battle. Hill shouted that that must be the general advance, and he ordered his gathered brigadiers, quote, bring up your brigades as soon as possible and join in it. D.H. Hill's order reveals a weak point in the Confederate assault plan. In order to have any chance at a breakthrough similar to what happened at Gaines Mill, rebel units would have to launch a coordinated mass assault, just like they managed to do at the end of the day on June 27th around Boson Swamp. But that wouldn't happen here at Malvern Hill on July 1st. D.H. Hill had intended to launch a coordinated assault, but the terrain made it difficult. As his brigades advanced, the woods broke up their alignment, causing some formations to get lost and go astray. As a result, Hill's brigades attacked piecemeal as they emerged from the trees, rather than wait for all to arrive and realign under the fire of the Union cannon atop Malvern Hill. As Hill's men were stepping off in the late afternoon slash early evening, the Union commanders were reinforcing their line. One Federal soldier stated bluntly, quote, We murdered them by the hundreds, but they again formed and came up to be slaughtered. A North Carolina soldier was just as blunt, admitting that despite gallant charges up the gentle slopes of Malvern Hill, quote, They mowed us down by fifties. Though after the war, D.H. Hill claimed that his brave soldiers had breached the Union lines briefly, he was mistaken. 
no Confederate troops would penetrate any part of the enemy line on July 1st. Hill's men only got within 200 yards of the Union line. The 3rd Alabama of John B. Gordon's brigade lost six color bearers killed in the advance, and their flag was shredded by the flying lead. The hopeless attacks of D.H. Hill's brigade resulted in his men suffering nearly 2,000 casualties out of 8,000 engaged. Hill was furious at the tragic results of a disastrous charge he felt never should have occurred. Of his division's experience at Malvern Hill, he would write bitterly, quote, It was not war, it was murder. Meanwhile, as the sun was setting, Magruder moved about his lines, sending brigades into action as they arrived on the field. William Barksdale's brigade of Mississippians attacked across the same path that Wright's men had taken, angling towards some slave cabins and a barn north of the crew house. But although Barksdale's charge put some pressure on the Union position and prompted some line shifting and requests for reinforcements among the Federals, the Mississippians never came close to reaching the Yankee line, and one-third of their 1,200 men fell as casualties. Some of Vujay's troops arrived to support Magruder, but were able to do nothing to assist the effort to break the Union line. As darkness approached, Magruder sent a message to Lee asking for more reinforcements, as it became apparent that his and Uge's men were not enough to force a breakthrough. Lee was with Lafayette McClaw's division when the message arrived from Magruder, and Lee personally advanced with McClaw's men and ordered Magruder to send them in further to the right, beyond the crew house. However, McClaw's two brigades, under Paul Sims and Joseph Kershaw, were not able to get even half of their men into the attack in the increasing darkness. But that notwithstanding, it's very likely that Sam's troops advanced farther than any other Confederates on July 1st, getting to the slave cabins about 50 yards from the Union lines before being driven back by an enemy counterattack just before it was too dark to see. The end of the fighting brought the slow discovery of enormous casualties. By the time the butcher's bill had been tallied and the accounting was all done, the Confederates had suffered more than 5,000 casualties on July 1st, while the Union Army on Malvern Hill suffered fewer than 3,000. As with every other individual battle during the seven days, it's impossible here at Malvern Hill to be exact on either side with casualty figures but it was clear to everyone that the rebels had received the worst of it. There was no disguising the fact that Lee's army had been soundly thrashed on July 1st. That night, Lee tried to understand how this disastrous battle had been set in motion after he had personally observed the failure of the Confederate artillery to soften up the Union defense. When he rode up to Magruder's headquarters, he asked, General Magruder, why did you attack? Without hesitation, Prince John replied, In obedience to your orders, twice repeated. This was true, and Lee knew it. He had authorized Chilton to send the first order, and he had ordered Magruder to attack when he received Prince John's message that Armistead had advanced, and then late in the evening, Lee had ordered Magruder to send in McClaw's men more to the right. 
Throughout the long day, Lee had never called off the attack or canceled any orders, and so there was nothing to do but acknowledge that at Malvern Hill, Lee's army had been defeated by a strong, well-posted enemy. The Confederate defeat was so complete that many rebel commanders were convinced that McClellan would take advantage of his victory and launch a counterattack the next day. Stonewall Jackson's division officers were so concerned about that logical possibility that they woke Jackson in the middle of the night to find out how he wanted them to deploy their forces to meet the expected Federal attack. To their surprise, the drowsy Stonewall simply replied, quote, McClellan and his army will be gone by daylight, end quote, and then he promptly fell back asleep. Many officers left that short conference dissatisfied with that answer and convinced it was further proof Stonewall wasn't himself, but Jackson was right. By the time the fog and mist lifted off the Malvern Hill battlefield at dawn on July 2nd, nothing remained but the dead, dying, and wounded covering the ground, the bodies marking the crest of the Confederate wave from the previous day. Colonel William Averill's 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry formed part of the Union rear guard, and so Averill was still on Malvern Hill as the first light of dawn spread across the countryside on July 2nd. He left this impression of the battlefield that morning. Quote, By this time the level rays of the morning sun were just penetrating the fog and slowly lifting its clinging shreds. Our ears had been filled with agonizing cries from thousands before the fog was lifted, but now our eyes saw an appalling spectacle upon the slopes down to the woodlands half a mile away. Over 5,000 dead and wounded men were on the ground, in every attitude of distress. A third of them were dead and dying, but enough were alive and moving to give to the field a singular crawling effect. The different stages of the ebbing tide are often marked by the lines of flotsam and jetsam left along the seashore. So here could be seen three distinct lines of dead and wounded marking the last front of three Confederate charges of the night before. George McClellan hadn't seen his army's victory at Malvern Hill as the potential starting point of a decisive counteroffensive against a bloodied, bruised, and weakened foe, but rather as a temporary check of the Confederate hordes that he claimed were relentlessly pursuing him. Many of his commanders, including his loyal friend Fitzjohn Porter, tried to convince McClellan that the army should counterattack on July 2nd, but Little Mac wouldn't consider it. McClellan ordered the strong position at Malvern Hill to be given up and the retreat to continue. From Haxel's Landing, it was eight miles by the river road to Harrison's Landing, the spot Little Mac had personally chosen as the Army's final destination. Nothing, not even a victory on July 1st, could deter him from his decision to move his army to that place. The order to retreat from Malvern Hill perplexed and angered many of the Army of the Potomac's enlisted men and officers. One junior officer admitted, quote, The idea of stealing away in the night from such a position after such a victory was simply galling. End quote. And when Phil Kearney learned of the order, he exploded in anger. But Kearney couldn't even berate Little Mac personally that night, as he had on the evening of June 27th 
Because the Army commander was already aboard the USS Galena, heading toward Harrison's landing. But Kearney did rail against McClellan long and loudly for all of his fellow officers in the Third Corps to hear. Kearney protested the order to retreat and declared flatly, quote, I say to you all, such an order can only be prompted by cowardice or treason. McClellan would be accused of cowardice on this day by several officers and again two years later by other people during the presidential election of 1864 when Little Mac was the Democratic Party's candidate. But there was no sudden onset of cowardice on July 1st. McClellan had also been absent from the main fighting at each of the campaign's other battles and most shamefully at Glendale. From the moment Lee launched his initial attack north of the Chickahominy, George McClellan had lost the will to fight. McClellan refused to consider counterattacking the rebel army after the Union victory at Malvern Hill because he was a broken commander, and the decisive crack had come all the way back on the evening of June 26th. At any rate, this last retreat for the Army of the Potomac was perhaps the worst. They hadn't marched very far before the heavens opened up again and a downpour quickly turned the river road into a muddy, nearly impassable quagmire. Weary soldiers in blue trudged on, dispirited and demoralized. Thousands of them discarded their gear, chucking aside everything from knapsacks to tents to rifles during the hard slog. Wagons were abandoned by the roadsides, as was much of the supplies and equipment carried in them. The Confederates would find tons of abandoned material strewn along the route from Malvern Hill to Harrison's Landing in the next few days. The weather made Confederate pursuit impossible for a couple of days. When the Union Army finally reached Harrison's Landing, the remaining 90,000 men, complete with tens of thousands of horses, mules, and cattle, all crowded into a four-square-mile space and set up camp. By the time Lee was able to get his army close enough to observe the new enemy position on July 4th, he wisely decided that there were no opportunities here to win a decisive victory. The defenses were too strong, and the big cannon of the Union gunboats protected the entirety of the enemy perimeter. Lee therefore ordered the bulk of his army back to camps near Richmond, where they could rest, refit, and recover. The Seven Days Campaign was officially over. The campaign was over and the Confederate capital had been saved for the moment, as McClellan's army had been driven back 35 miles away from the city. But the cost had been high. Lee had started his offensive with roughly 90,000 men and suffered slightly more than 20,000 casualties during the campaign. McClellan had begun with an army of more than 100,000 men and suffered approximately 16,000 casualties. He had preserved his army, an accomplishment for which he was rather proud. As we've seen, though, not every soldier in his army shared Little Mac's view of the matter, and certainly none of his superiors in the War Department or Lincoln administration took similar pride in, in the retreat to the James. But Little Mac admitted no mistakes and blamed others, particularly his superiors in Washington, for his failures. More on that later. Robert E. Lee, for his part, was bitterly disappointed that he had left McClellan an army to take to the sanctuary of the James. Despite the numerous accolades he received from the southern press, Lee felt that his army could have achieved a victory that was so much more significant, 
He complained to his wife that his victory was not, quote, as great or complete as we should have desired, end quote. And when he wrote his final report on the series of battles, Lee declared, quote, under ordinary circumstances, the Federal Army should have been destroyed. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Seven Days Battles, The War Begins Anew by Jedkin Browning. This book by Browning on the Seven Days is part of the Battles and Leaders of the Civil War series by the publisher Prager. In less than 200 pages, Browning does an excellent job of taking the reader through the entire campaign, and he breaks down each of the battles, showing how each piece of the campaign fit together to form a whole. Don't forget you can find The Seven Days Battles, The War Begins Anew by Jedkin Browning and all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then just a programming slash personal note, uh, but I found out this past summer I would be losing my job at some point in what was then the near future, uh, but which is now in the past. Um, but there was a lot of stress this past summer, and a lot of time and energy was taken up with that development, as perhaps some of you who have been through the same thing can relate to. Uh, thankfully, though, I did find a new position, so rather than facing the specter of unemployment, I can instead continue to support Tracy in the manner to which she has become accustomed. Does that mean I don't have to work anymore? We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but anyway, all of this relates to the podcast. Since we've missed some episodes in the recent past, and that may happen again in the future, since with my new job, I'll be on call at least one weekend a month, and when something critical comes up during those weekends, it'll mean our timetable for recording the podcast may be upset. And most of the time, that's meant we just wait until the next weekend to record, since we've learned from past experience that it's pretty hard to try and play catch-up doing that on a weeknight. It just leads to undue wear and tear on the marriage. Anyway, there you go. We just wanted you guys to be aware of the situation. And we do often wish we could just focus our time and energy on the podcast, but, you know, real life and jobs and stuff sometimes gets in the way. So that means I do still have to go to work. Yes, uh, sorry, we both do. <laughs> but hey, as we wrap things up for this show, just a quick shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Stephen, Mark, and John. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we look at the aftermath of the Seven Days Campaign and look at Abraham Lincoln's visit to the Union Army at Harrison's Landing. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.